0: Hello, my name is Joel Harrison. I'm editor in chief of B2B Marketing. I am delighted to be joined today for the B2B Marketing podcast by Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy, um, who is a wonderful aficionado of many things relating to marketing, uh, and, has, and has got a wealth of experience in lots of aspects. And he is, we're delighted that he's going to be one of the keynote speakers for our Ignite USA event, which is taking place in May this year. So I want to take the trouble to take a bit of Rory's time to ask him some questions about what he gets up to, his specialist subjects, his kind of background, um, and some of the very interesting opinions that he has about B two B marketing or marketing more generally, and its kind of collision with the world of behavioural science. So Rory, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
1: Huge pleasure to be on. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Rory, um, you are very well known in lots of circles, but not to everyone in the entire marketing world. So tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do all day? And and tell us a bit about your kind of career trajectory at Ogilvy.
1: So I joined Ogilvy as a graduate trainee um, in 1988, in September 1988, and specifically joined Ogilvy and May the Direct, which was the direct marketing arm And it's probably fair to say also very much the B2B arm. Of course, that isn't a coincidence that B2B generally having a narrower and smaller target audience uh, would have made a far greater use of addressable media uh, back then um, than it would have conventional advertising. And This was very, very fortunate, by the way, because... Uh, because in direct marketing, you get results. And because in direct marketing, you can test and experiment. And because in direct marketing, you very, very quickly realize that conventional economic theories about human behavior don't have very good predictive value. In fact, what influences people to do one thing or another um is not the conventional things of price and objective reality, which economists would suggest. I became... I suppose, indirectly really interested in what I didn't then know was called behavioural economics and behavioural science. I can be excused, I think, for not knowing it because the the whole category barely existed back then. Just to give you a little bit of career background, um, I was, as a graduate trainee, it was treated as sort of axiomatic that you became an account man. And I was never really very well cut out for that. Um, I'm probably, I was, mean, I, it's often said I was the worst graduate, uh, trainee Ogilvy, uh, hired. I think that was a little bit of a, um, a rewriting of history because at some aspects of the job, I was quite good. At other aspects, the organizational and project management part of the job, I was both terrible at and, to be honest, really hated. Uh, there's a famous story which is true, which is I was eventually booked as a remedial, um, Gesture, I was booked onto a time management course, but I got the date wrong. Um, <laughs> that is absolutely true. There, there are some stories which aren't true, but that one is. And um, during the uh, graduate training course, you spent two weeks in the creative department. And pretty much within about two hours of landing up there, I decided, although I kept it a little bit secret, that this is what I really wanted to do. So eventually, after about a year and a half, and I'll spare the gory details. It was by no means a smoother transition as I'm making it sound now. I managed to move from being a kind of account handler planner uh, to being a copywriter. And that was in, I think, February, March 1990, June, June 1990. Uh, so that was, yes, not quite a, not quite two years later. And um, I was a copywriter, um, head of copy, creative director variously over the next 10 or 15 years, Uh, then vice chairman of the Combined Ogilvy Group. Um, And then um, uh, in 2009, I was elected, uh, I was the first creative person, and and so far the last, to be president of the IPA. So the first person from a creative background uh, to be IPA president. And in that time as president, you have a two-year term and you needed an agenda. Now, by this point, books like Richard Thaler's Nudge had come out, And I had discovered that this thing I was fascinated in, which was essentially deep, rigorous inquiry into how people really think, decide and act and how they process information and what information influences them. By then, books by Robert Cialdini, books by Richard Thaler, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, those were starting to enter the mainstream. And, you know, about a year or so earlier, I had discovered that there was this thing called behavioural economics, which, until until then, had always been what I called the thing for which we have no name. You know, I was convinced, even you know, ten years earlier, um, that you know there was something about you know fundamentally about our own assumptions about how we make decisions. Never mind our, our assumptions about how other people make decisions. Uh, our, our assumptions about how we ourselves make decisions. Psychology has revealed essentially is an emotional process which is heavily post-rationalized in retrospect. And so market research doesn't really have fantastic predictive value, always. It can do, but it can't be relied on because people don't have introspective access to their own motivations. And so I made the IPA two-year agenda, essentially getting the IPA member agencies much, much better at understanding this stuff. Now, why that has implications for B2B is very, very important, which is I think that the problem that B2B marketing faces is that because in B2B the amount you spend on comms, on the promotional P of marketing, tends to be relatively small, marketing tends to have a relatively low stature and a low level of influence, simply because it's not very expensive. What I found fascinating about behavioral science is that it enabled you to deploy human insight and creativity in the service of lots and lots of business problems, not just those business problems where bought media, advertising, or communication formed a large part of the solution. And to me, it completely broadened the remit of what a marketing agency could be. And because it removed that totally bogus association, I mean, agencies haven't been paid on commission since 1989. But to a large extent, they still behave as though they are. And what I discovered is that when you had a behavioral science view in the world, you could creatively solve all kinds of problems, not exclusively using communication. And you could solve those problems for people who didn't have a big media budget. Some of our clients at Ogilvy Change included not only B2B clients, but the Thames Valley Police, for example. The Thames Valley Police are never going to attend the Cannes Advertising Festival. But it suddenly occurred to me, this was precisely what I loved about behavioral science, which is that you could deploy exactly the same creativity and insight that had been used historically by ad agencies to produce advertising. And you could take exactly that same sort of independence of mind and deploy it to 100 times more clients, very specifically the very people who don't attend the Cannes Advertising Festival, who are just as much in need of creativity as anybody else.
0: So, so this this whole area was um, fascinated you and gripped you, and and it felt like it, it's from what you're saying. It sounds like it kind of it was emerging at the same time as your career was progressing. So it was a kind of serendipitous alignment of. Career. It, it was
1: hugely timely, actually, because I I think um, had these books not come out, had I not discovered behavioural science. Uh, by the way, it's more than just behavioural economics. It's behavioural science. It's psychology. It also includes evolutionary psychology. Um, and also evolutionary thinking and complexity thinking. Um, so the whole question of, you know, how you understand and scienceize complex systems as distinct from sort of Newtonian physics, you know, highly deterministic um, things like the laws of physics. You know, human behavior is not like that. It's a completely different category of thing where laws are not universal, where what's true at one scale is not true at another. And having discovered this area of science around complexity, psychology, behavioral science, social psychology, and so forth, it completely gave me a new lease of life, I think. Because A, being able to solve a completely different category of problem in a completely different way for a completely new class of client. And B2B, by the way, which is, let's face it, half of the economy, right? Yeah. And it's a nonsense to think that Unilever, simply because they advertise a lot, are in massive need of creativity and human insight, but Rolls-Royce aero engines aren't, you know. And so one of the things I think it does is it not only revitalizes my enthusiasm for working in a marketing services agency, I think it does goes further than that. I think it revitalizes marketing and reestablishes the essential primacy of a customer view in any organization regardless of what its media spend happens to be
0: and you're you're one of the preeminent people talking about this certainly in marketing um and and bringing some of these fields together i mean do you do you feel like you're kind of spearheading something or do you feel like it was something that would have would have arisen some other people would have found it eventually or or at the same time and it would have become something significant in marketing as such as it is now or, or do you feel like you've i wish it would actually blow your own trumpet dragged it into the kind of spotlight
1: Um, i mean no i i've made a lot of noise i mean and by the way you know i make no apology for that because natural behavior in any organization always reverts to habit and so if you want to disrupt anything making a lot of noise uh, is an essential part of that process. You have to continually remind people of the alternative to prevent them you know, always falling back on plan A, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes describe myself as a behavioral science impresario. <laughs> and that's partly to make the fact, make the point that I, I have no qualifications in the area. I was a plasticist at university. Um, I employ, you know, fourteen people who do have psychology qualifications. Although that is by no means a prerequisite, in my view, uh, what you need to do with this is a mindset. It isn't a, um, it, it isn't a, you know, an MSc. And um, but but w- when I describe myself as an impresario, what I mean is, and by the way, that's not an irrelevant um, thing. Darwin, I think, needed Huxley. Uh, You see what I mean? If there are big, important ideas out there, it isn't true to say that those ideas will be adopted and enthusiastically followed according to their own merits, which is the standard sort of scientific view. In fact, if you don't market good ideas, um, it's very easy for good ideas to die. So, so you you're a and we this is a,
0: bit, a question we glossed over a little bit. I mean you're sometimes described as an eccentric um, is that a, a fair
1: word to describe as you recognize that um, yeah yeah I, I don't doubt about that um a little bit of it's cultivated uh, quite a bit of it's, it is um uh once you see the world through a slightly different lens, it's a little like uh, where I find myself and i think to be honest I think my fourteen colleagues would say the same is that if you can imagine a world where everybody else in London has the tube map and you have a rail map or a bus map, okay, then conversations sometimes, you, you will seem a weird person, won't you, okay? Because everybody else is going no 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 it's central line and then you change the Oxford Circus and you go what the fuck are you talking about? You oh dear, I sorry about this. Uh, are we after the watershed? You know, <laughs> and so you know, everybody else is going no 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 central line change to Oxford Circus mate, and you are going no 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 we want the twenty seven. <laughs> okay, um, now they are both you know valid solutions to. I am not sure if it is the twenty seven. Um, but but they're both valid solutions to a perfectly reasonable problem using a different mental toolkit okay and so it's inevitable it is a price you pay for good and ill that if you if you adopt and deploy a different mental toolkit from everybody else which after all is what a bloody agency should be trying to do you know there's no point in hiring an agency if they come along with exactly the same you know i mean i always regard mckinsey as a bit pointless because essentially you're paying a huge amount of money to hire a bunch of people who think exactly the way you do <laughs> and um so the whole point is that anybody who has a different mental map of the world will always come across as weird. I mean, David Ogilvy also gives the advice, which is cultivate your eccentricities early, because then when you get old, nobody will think you've gone mad. <laughs> yeah, that's Instead, nice. you know, If you leave your eccentricities too late in life, then uh, it's often interpreted as senility or insanity. That's a very good point. I can see that applies. One, one other lucky thing I have to say is that I'm old um, and that this In a sense, I think had I had this epiphany when I was 28 or 32 rather than 40 something, I think I would have gone slightly nuts. Because one advantage of being in your late 40s and 50s is when you say strange things, people do pay more attention than when you do when you're 27.
0: Just thinking about, you early on, you mentioned the word disruption, and uh, is there an aspects of this, and you, you kind of also painted the picture of, um, you were kind of, I got the sense from what you were saying that, you know, you've been doing your job, the conventional aspect of it, at least if you can call it that, for a long time, and, and this whole topic came as a bit of a game changer for you, um, but at the same time, you know, marketing itself has been disrupted, hasn't it? There's certainly the old-fashioned methods of it, direct marketing has, been, advertising has, you know, so this is um there is an extent to which this whole topic of behavioural economics, um, behavioural science, allows the, the disruptors to be disrupted. It, it, allows, it allows people to um, reframe what's important and perhaps, you know, have an argument, perhaps some of the data obsession that, that we're getting, not necessarily
1: wrongly. But it, 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 it gives you scientific justification. And by the way, even more important, a justification, not only one that's scientific, but one that uses scientific language. Mm -hmm. Okay, to justify what in the absence of that science would seem whimsical, silly, or irrational. Uh And one of the problems marketers have always faced, I think that's particularly true in B2B, is the vocabulary of marketing is stupid. Okay. It's, you know, there are a lot of words. I mean, brand is an incredibly important concept, okay, but it's become a word a bit like the blank tile in Scrabble where you could use it to mean whatever you like. You know, it's brand advertising. Why didn't this ad get any response? Oh, because it's brand advertising, you know. And so to anybody who isn't a marketer, marketing language makes us look ridiculous. And we forget that, I think. Uh, you know, because among marketing, it's like a brilliant colleague of mine, Alistair Graham, said the language of marketing is like the language of astrology. If you're talking to fellow believers, uh, you sound fine. But to strangers, you sound like a lunatic, you know, born on the cusp of Sagittarius. You know, ooh, ooh, that's typically Gemini, right? Okay. You know, if you believe in astrology, you're having a same conversation. If you're anybody who doesn't, basically, you sound like a nut. <laughs> and one of the most interesting things I discovered, particularly true, in, not only in B2B, but in Silicon Valley, if you have a very strong engineering culture, a very strong financial culture, a very strong logistics culture, Okay, where everything is all about certainty, quantification, and optimization, then both marketers and marketing language is particularly maddening. And so, what this enables us to do, I think, which is the the most important thing of all, of sod agencies. Okay, it, you know, twenty percent of me doesn't care if you know the whole agency business goes under. What's absolutely vital to the progress of capitalism and humanity is that the marketing mindset, i.e. looking at something through the lens of consumer perception rather than through a top-down systems lens, you know, a balance sheet lens, if that viewpoint is lost from businesses, they will make incredibly expensive mistakes and they will fail to understand the world properly.
0: Do you think then that that actually that problem's got
1: worse in more recent times? Yes, enormously worse. And I think in the... Uh, um, arrival of things like AI, the arrival, you know, just buzzwords like AI, the arrival of the spreadsheet, you know, going back to the kind of early nineties has led people. We accepted in 1988 that there were large numbers of things which were kind of unknowable. Okay. And immeasurable. And this has led us to believe that you can kind of adopt all this sort of weird computerization has led us to believe in this kind of painting by numbers um view of capitalism which is it's just a matter of quantification measurement and optimization and um so what's happened is that marketing first first of all i think you know marketing often falls into the trap of of essentially doing what you can justify not doing what's important yes okay particularly true in b2b marketing i make this point all the time okay if you're a famous b2b brand and you do some good marketing OK, the likelihood that someone returns your chief executive's phone call might go up enormously. Mm-hmm. Now, that's hugely valuable. The likelihood that good candidates will want to work for you will go up. That's hugely valuable. Right. I imagine that Rolls-Royce Aero Engines finds it much easier to attract first rate engineering graduates uh, than, you know, the Zog Corporation. Right. Right and that they're willing to work for it for a bit less because it's cv enhancing now one you'll never be able to measure the extent to which any particular communication contributed to that effect nor will you able to be able to quantify the value of that effect you know okay let's just take a parallel thing you know let's imagine a parallel universe where rolls-royce aero engines was less well known and 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 employed in every case a level of engineer who was 10 or 12 percent worse than they currently employ Mm -hmm. okay what were the level of profit well that company may have gone bankrupt by the way right? right so the idea that you can quantify these things and place a value on them um you know down to a kind of several decimal places is i think it's a dangerously deterministic obsession with the idea that once you can measure everything, first of all, you can't measure everything, um, you know, large numbers of hugely important things are are always going to remain totally immeasurable and inaccessible. But the idea that you can run business as if it's a kind of machine, I think is a dangerous illusion. But of course, Silicon Valley and tech and computerization um, all have a lot of snake oil to sell, which is much easier to sell if you pretend that's true.
0: Yeah, it's um it's uh, I, I can see that's a an argument and a way of thinking which is um
1: it's it's, it's very seductive to a lot of people. Um I mean, I always argue look a lot a large amount of activity in business and marketing particularly uh, it isn't deterministic it's probabilistic. You can't be sure how it'll work you can't necessarily measure the extent to which it works but you can confidently say that if you do it you're much more likely to have lucky things happen than if you don't
0: so so it's it's worth pursuing because of the the some of the the fallout that we can't or the benefits and fallout whatever you want to describe it as that we can't necessarily see from the outset because it's good
1: the, the 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 balance of problems. I mean, when I set out marketing my book, when I when I'd first written it, the publisher, among other people, wrote to The Virgin Breakfast Show and Chris Evans about my book. OK, now, no one would have planned that in advance. I wouldn't have sat down and said, well, it's a book about behavioral science and uh, particular interest to marketers and practitioners. Um, it's got a bit of evolutionary psychology in it. Um, so we want to get it on the Radio 1 breakfast show, okay? But what weirdly happened is the publisher sent it out anyway. I got invited on the Radio 1 breakfast show. Not something you would have planned. Um, for about five days thereafter, the book was sort of number 12 on Amazon in the UK. You know, It was outselling the highway code. <laughs> now, the point is, lucky stuff like that doesn't happen if you don't market it.
0: Absolutely, you have to get out there.
1: And by the way, business people instinctively understand this, don't they? When they have networking drinks, yeah. when there's alcohol involved, everybody goes, along. no one goes on to networking drinks with a specific plan in mind. They accept the fact that it's worth hanging around and drinking bad red wine and eating silly canapes for two hours on the off chance that something really valuable happens. And nine times out of 10, it may be pretty worthless. And then the 10th time, you meet the client of your dream. So, so Rory. But we don't try and plan it all in advance, and we don't quantify it in retrospect, but we still do it. And you might argue that procurement um, uh, operates on that very, very dangerous pretense. Mm -hmm. Um, I, 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 I don't think procurement should exist in the way it does. For the most part. Gotta be careful saying this. My wife used to work in my wife used to work in defense procurement. Okay. That's where it's a kind of strategic discipline. Where it's simply um salami slicing, price cutting, and destroying any chance to create social capital between supplier and purchaser. I think it's net economically negative. Um and and so Uh, the 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 really important point here is that marketing the understanding um first of all uh, um, one of the reasons and and and, and i blame agencies for this partly uh communication or p promotion is only one of the five p's and it's not necessarily the most important thing that marketers do you know there's price place um sometimes positioning is included etc okay now uh My view is that someone, even if you're selling aero engines, someone with a marketing mindset should be present to discuss price. I'll give you a lovely example of this, which I've I've often cited to people, which is um, if you don't have a marketer present, everybody will proceed on the assumption that everybody is rational and that economics is true. And therefore, the only way you can improve your product, let's say you're an industrial energy provider, Okay, You're providing electricity to a large factory, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to drop your price. What do you do? You drop the price per unit of a kilowatt hour to the aluminium smelting works or whatever. Now, I would be sitting in that meeting and go, are you sure? Right? Right. And they go, well, how, how can how can there be anything bad in reducing price? And the first question I'd ask is, maybe you want to reduce the price, but why don't you keep the price the same and pay them a rebate every year? And they'll go, what the hell's the difference? And I'll go, because if you're a finance director, you'd much rather get a rebate than get a discount. Because the rebate is probably money you can punt around from one budget to yeah. another. Whereas the discount is understanding the psychology of the buyer, isn't it? So understanding the psychology of the buyer in something as simple as simply asking the question, well, we're gonna drop the price by five percent, why don't you keep the same the price the same and give them a four percent rebate? I bet they'll value that just as much. So, so,
0: okay. So we so you mean, this is a classic example of how the, the relevance of, of um uh, behavioral psychology behavioral science is as relevant if not more so in b2b as
1: it is in b2c because of the complexity of- the, the, the psychology is still there i mean the, the, the way i often described it in fact i described it at your last conference and it's a, a gross oversimplification so if there are any academic psychologists in the audience apologies in advance but um in b2c a very simple generalization okay is that when people make a purchase decision, they're trying to minimize the risk of regret. Now, by the way, that's very important in itself because if if you're not trying to buy the best thing you can, you're trying to minimize the chance that you buy something which proves disappointing, you will actually adopt completely different mental patterns. And everybody assumes and everybody pretends when they buy something, now I'm just trying to buy the best thing I can for my money. Okay, and I would argue that um, the unconscious part of the brain is not preoccupied with optimization. It's preoccupied with avoiding disaster, which, for evolutionary reasons, all manner of reasons, is more important in many ways. Okay.
0: So, on that note, Rory, are you are you kind of the
1: anti-data person? <laughs> No, 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 Um, um, no. This is, it it wasn't David Ogilvie, who said it. It was a Scottish philosopher, but another Scot. The great phrase about, you know, these people use data, uh, or statistics it was originally, such people use statistics as a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. (laughs) And I'm a huge fan of data as illumination. Uh, I'm a huge fan of data as hypothesis testing. I'm a huge fan of behavioral data, because behavioral data is an order of magnitude more revealing than, say, attitudinal data because it's something someone actually did, okay? Okay, so I'm a huge fan of data. What I'm not a fan of is the idea that you can basically um, uh, – there's a use of support rather than illumination. What what this means is that if I can pretend this is an entirely rational, data-driven decision, I'm off the hook for any blame if it goes wrong. The more I admit to any subjectivity being deployed in my decision, right, yeah. uh, at that point, if things go wrong, my job is on the line. No. And so a large amount of data is used to pretend that the answer to your conclusion is self-evident and rational, which means, therefore, that you're not really held responsible for it because uh, I was only obeying spreadsheets uh, to you know it's it's kind of like the Nuremberg defense you know uh, you know I was only obeying an algorithm
0: it's it's a, it's a kind of it plays to this kind of com- complex hypocritical counterintuitive view of what we actually are as human beings
1: there's another point I'll make, by the way, a B2B point, which is one area where I'm very sceptical about the advertising approach to the world is I think if you have a customer journey, now, okay, we, we get the fact this is kind of overused. You know, I'm going to start talking about brand onions in you know, any minute now. But if you have a customer journey, it seems obvious to me that you should optimise the end of the journey and then work backwards mm-hmm. because there's no point in optimising what you might call the top of the funnel if there's a bottleneck at the bottom of the funnel. So my idea, my approach to everything is you should start with the behavior and work backwards. And what advertising tends to do, because all the money is in bought media, is you start far out and move in. Yeah, yeah. And now why I'm saying that behavioral science and a behavioral science practice, we can work just as well with B2B as we can with um, B2C is because we'll say, no, 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 we're not going to talk about advertising for the first three months because before we're even going to discuss the role that advertising might play, we have to check that the bottom end of your funnel will conversion, repurchase, um, you know, conversion and repurchase. We have to make sure those are optimized before it's worth optimizing anything further out, so it's often completely up- upending. And so you don't need you don't need a media budget to do this. And what we might say is you are offering two products you order off a three and build a bit of extra margin into the one in the middle. So, Rory, um, this is
0: fascinating stuff as always, but I'm mindful that we um, we only have so much time on our podcast. I'd love to talk to you for, for uh, always more time than I have, but I'm, we're going to probably try and wrap up with a closing question um, now. Would you?
1: Of course, yeah, as long as it's not too weirdly personal <clears throat> or,
0: or deviant. Yeah, that'll be fine. I've, I've tried. I've cut all those ones out already you cut those
1: you cut those ones out yeah okay
0: you're, you're you're speaking to we're talking primarily because you're going to be talking at our uh, ignite
1: usa event in chicago in chicago greatest city in america in my opinion uh, can, fabulous place
0: can you tell us i think so too uh, i can can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking i mean obviously it's about this kind of stuff but it's going to be taking stuff out of your some stuff out of your book as well but can you give us a little snapshot about what you're going to be talking about at, at um at igniting uh, in may
1: uh, very simply, and I can do this in a sentence, what I think behavioral science allows us to do is, first and most important, to elevate the status of marketers in organizations which aren't necessarily media-heavy, okay? And the most important thing is to elevate the status of marketers and marketing within organizations because, you know, the future of agencies in which I work isn't worth shit unless you can manage to do that, Okay you know, we can have marketing directors loving us, you know, for all it's worth. But if marketers themselves aren't respected and influential, uh, then we're kind of whistling Dixie. Okay. Now, what I I suppose I intend to say is that if you take a much broader, less comms focused view of marketing, creativity, insight, and you also have the language and vocabulary to to describe it in terms which don't, alienate a finance director or a logistics director or a chief operating officer. Okay. Then the remit for marketing and therefore the necessary influence of marketing is much broader and much greater than it's currently assumed to be.
0: And it's and it's certainly hard to imagine any marketers with any sense of ambition really arguing. You
1: would hope, wouldn't
0: you? Yeah, I agree. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's where we want to get. One. And, and so I'm really excited to hear what you've got to say again at Ignite. So, Rory, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been fascinating to ever to hear what you've got to say. So, um, and looking forward to hearing you at, at Ignite. And uh,
1: coronavirus permitting, see you in Chicago. Okay, likewise. Fantastic, thanks, Rory. Thank you.